All right, so today we are moving forward into Nehemiah 6. And as we go into Nehemiah 6, the way that I uh, normally work through a sermon is I spend a lot of time looking and reading. And I have to be real honest, for a long time, I got nothing. Oh, the kids got to go. That's right. We got to send the kids out of here. All right, out you go. Any more children's? Oh, we got a couple more leaving. All right. So a lot of stuff wasn't coming to me. It was, it was an odd experience for me to be praying through this and really searching, and God was just sort of quiet. And then this Thursday, all at once, it was all of a sudden this passage made sense. It became to me the responses of a great leader. So before I was just sort of reading it historically, and then all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, this is how a leader responds to this sort of controversy. And so I have an admission to make before we get started. Yesterday we were at a block party on uh, Marsden, and it was at a block party sometime past that I had somebody make some awkward admissions to me, and so I'm going to borrow their paradigm. Uh, I have a new guilty pleasure. Some of you know about it, some of you don't. I love me some Gordon Ramsay. That guy, when he goes into a kitchen that is dysfunctional and just starts yelling at people for some reason... That really gets to me. And I tried to find a clip to include to say, like, this is how leaders do stuff. But I can't find one without him swearing, so I couldn't put it in church on Sunday. But there's something about every human organization, whether it's a kitchen, a workplace, a sports team, a classroom, there are some things that are similar in all these different places. And through my new guilty pleasure, I realized that all human organizations are basically the same. And to a certain extent, all human leaders are basically the same. And if you know anything about Kitchen Nightmares, it's some horrible leaders in Kitchen Nightmares. They have, like, moldy food in their kitchen. They have rats in their restaurant. And Gordon Ramsay comes in and yells at them to fix everything. Now, I'm not going to propose today that Nehemiah yelled at people in order to fix the wall. But I am going to propose that there are at least three responses that would be very helpful in any paradigm, whether it's at your job, in your family, at your school, wherever it is that you find yourself, that these things are similar. So if we could, please, go forward a slide. So here we have, starting uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. When word came to Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sambalot and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Now, I don't know how much you know about ancient architecture or walls, so I have provided us a picture on the next slide. There it is. This is the Lion's Gate in Jerusalem. This is, as we found out in our Wednesday night small group, little side pitch, in our Wednesday night small group, that these are the walls built in the 1500s. These are not original to the time of Nehemiah, his walls. His walls get destroyed something like 16 times over the course of history. The walls of Jerusalem fall. So this is one of the later ones, uh, actually by the Ottoman Empire, but it's still there now. This is what a wall looks like. You can notice on the sides they have these wonderful arrow slits, or of course those from the 1500s, probably gun slits, so that you being in the walls can shoot out at whoever's outside. So the wall is defensible without a gate. But if you'll notice, with the gate open, you can still just kind of walk in. So the job is not finished yet when they, this message is sent. The wall is almost finished, but until you put the gates in, the wall is indefensible. That's why you see in movies uh, like Lord of the Rings, you know, where do they attack Helm's Deep? At the gate. Where do they attack Minas Tirith? At the gate. If you think about... Um, any movie that you've seen, like with the Crusaders or any of the ancient medieval movies, they always, they don't attack the brunt of the wall. They attack the gate because the gate's the weak point. And so the wall is almost done, but the gates have not been set yet. And they know if they can distract Nehemiah now, the city will still be vulnerable. So let's flip forward one more. There we go. So we get Nehemiah's first reply. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it 
and go down to you. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Now, this is what I think is one of the first characteristics of a great leader, someone who really knows how to get a job done, is that they stay on task. Nehemiah knows, and we can't speculate exactly what exactly this message said. He doesn't provide the text of that message for us. We don't know if they were trying to kill him. We don't know if they were trying to join him. We don't know what they were trying to do. But what we do know is that by Nehemiah leaving to go meet with them, he would have been distracted from his goal, which was finishing the wall. So the first characteristic I see that we can glean from this text is that great leaders finish what they start. Nehemiah refuses to go down because finishing the work is more important than placating his enemies. He could very easily decide, okay, these guys are giving me a hard time. They keep bothering me. They keep, you know, insisting that I do X, Y, or Z thing. But it's more important to him to finish the work that he started than to go off on another thing. Now, this, this might be a little bit too honest for you, but I'm going to go there anyway because we can. I come from a household where I love my father to death, but he is king of starting way too many projects at once. We have had a six-wheel like quad sitting in the basement that's like a, it goes on water and on land, and it's been in pieces in my dad's basement for 15 years. And I'm sure everyone has seen somebody that likes to start a lot of projects and doesn't finish them. Now, I have a little bit of this in me as well, having grown up in my father's household. I see a lot of good ideas, and I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. And if I'm going to be very honest, I think one of my biggest shortcomings is seeing a good idea, acknowledging someone else's good idea, saying, yeah, I want to be a part of that, and then never getting back to it again. It's a flaw. It's one of the issues that I have. And I think in order for myself, I'm going to be emotionally healthy and speak in the eye, in order for myself to be a better leader, I have to finish what I start. That if I set out to complete a task, I have to finish that task whatever that is. Secondly, and this is a little bit of historical knowledge, if he leaves the task that God has given him to do, he leaves safety. God has assigned Nehemiah a task to rebuild these walls. When he's inside the walls, he's safe. If he leaves, we know from previous chapters that these guys have an army. Jerusalem doesn't have an army. Not a very good one, or they would have rebuilt their walls already. If he leaves Jerusalem and goes out to meet with these men, they could capture him and say, stop building the wall or we kill Nehemiah. I think part of what God's telling me as I've been reading this this week is that not only do you finish what you start because it makes you a good leader, but when you finish what you start and it's God's work, that's where you're safest. Even though it might have appeared to Nehemiah that he was safest back in the king's court, Back in Susa, he's actually safest down in Jerusalem, doing the work that God gave him to do, even though most people would probably look at Jerusalem like they looked at Kensington, or if it's Philly, Camden, or something like that, a place of broken down walls, social disarray. You know, we just got through chapter five where there's all sorts of social dis, uh, disenfranchisement for different peoples within the city. Even given all that, this is the safest place that Nehemiah could be. And lastly, if Nehemiah doesn't finish the work that God has given Nehemiah to do, nobody will. Ezra came back hundreds of years previous and started rebuilding the temple, but the walls never got finished. If he doesn't do the work. He doesn't finish the job. Nobody's going to finish the job. God has appointed this for him. It says in Scripture that God has laid out good works for all of us to do. There's special, unique things that we have to do in the kingdom that are just for us. There are specific Chris Cook tasks that I have to do. And when God sets me on one of those, I have to make sure that I finish it. Second thing. Then, it's about to get real personal, and there might be some ouchies coming out here in a minute. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Then, the fifth time, Samblot sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, 
It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report, we'll get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. So now, these guys get a little dirty. They start doing a little bit of blackmail. A little bit of blackmail. They're saying, do this or else. Now, an unsealed letter, uh, to most of us today, I can't even remember the last time I got a letter. This would be the equivalent of, like, let me see if I can translate this into modern times here. Uh, Sambalat posted on Facebook this message. Hashtag your name, right? So that anybody could see what was going on. This is the equivalent of like that passive aggressive Facebook post that goes out there where you see somebody like fishing out a rumor and they're sort of throwing it out there and you're like, come on now. Everybody sees through that thinly veiled attempt. Everybody knows what that is. And then you see other people saying, yeah, I saw that was true too. And that's like the comment underneath. That's Geshem. He's commenting underneath saying, yep, totally heard that's what's happening. I've noticed that his second reply is a reply of a great leader as well. His second reply says this. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your own head. Now, I just want to say, I have Facebook. I look at it. I've seen what happens out there in the netherworld of the internet. There is some heinous stuff that comes out on Facebook. There are some ridiculous, mudsling attempts. In light of all of the racial tensions in our country currently, people post some wild stuff out there. And you're like, unfollow. I'm not listening to you anymore. The second reply is really important because, again, I'm going to speak in the eye. When I see someone post something stupid, we'll just say it's stupid, I want to correct that stupidity and say, actually, that is not how the world works. It's this way. Nehemiah takes a little bit of a different approach. So if we could, there we go. If we think about rumors, there's a lot of rumors out there. And you can spend a lot of time fighting with people about a lot of rumors. Here are some of my internet favorites that if you do some quick Google searches, like for instance, did you know 9-11 was a hoax? Those buildings didn't exist or that jet fuel can't melt steel beams, which is a really popular phrase on the internet. I don't know why. Or, for instance, the moon landing. We also didn't do that. That was filmed in a Hollywood studio in the 60s, and despite all the scientific evidence to the contrary, doesn't matter, that never happened either. Or that JFK got shot with a magic bullet. That's also quite good. Or that Elvis is still alive and that the king never really dies, and there is actually now a religion about Elvis because, you know, the king comes back. Rumors happen all the time, and people will believe some wild stuff. There's actually a group, this exists, you can Google it, fact check me millennials. There's a group called the Flat Earth Society that has actual scientific, quote-unquote, physics, quote-unquote, proof that the Earth is in fact flat and not round, it just appears to be a disk in space. Yeah, that exists, it's on the internet, it must be true. Rumors have this strange way of propagating themselves when you fight them. Let me go one more. And I just want to throw this, uh, this caution out. Be careful about what we say. Because here, Nehemiah is directly opposed by enemies, but there are also rumors that are started amongst friends. There are rumors that are started within the church. Because people either say something carelessly, out of frustration, and it's damaging to the leadership and to the body cohesion whole. This is what the founder of our denomination has to say about rumors, gossip, and etc. He says, I would rather play with forked lightning or take in my hand living wires with their fiery current than speak a reckless word against any servant of Christ or idly repeat the slanderous dart which thousands of Christians are hurling on others. This is like circa 1910. 
pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter, pre-anonymous posts on the internet, pre-Yelp reviews for restaurants, churches. Notice here that Nehemiah is not starting the rumor because great leaders don't start rumors. Their enemies do. Give me one more. Thank you. Instead, he just denies it, says, that's not true. And that's it. His reply to that very lengthy letter is terse, short. That's not true. You're making it up. Done. He doesn't send back a list of all the ways that he's not going to be king. He doesn't send back sworn testimony from all the prophets in Jerusalem saying that he's not going to try to be king. He just says, that's not true. And like most rumors, this one was also baseless. There was no reason to start this rumor. There was no reason for it to be. It wasn't founded on anything in particular. It just, out of thin air, made it. There's this interesting concept. Uh, rumors are created because we fear something might be true, and in fearing that it might be true, we can give it life. Right? Fear that something might be true. Because we don't want to look stupid. We don't want to be the last ones in. My uh, favorite Christian philosopher once said that there's two ways to be deceived. One is to believe that which is not true, and the second is to refuse to believe that which is true. We're all actually afraid of being wrong. And if so-and-so is not the upstanding, righteous, holy man of God that we expect them to be, we're afraid we might be getting duped. And so when somebody, we'll say person X over here, says to you, oh, did you hear Pastor Chris, or Pastor Luis, or Pastor Jim, or whoever, whoever, whoever said, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, I've thought about them all wrong this whole time. All of a sudden, it's got life that fast. The closer the relationship the more dangerous this becomes. Did you hear? Now you feel betrayed by something that person didn't even say, didn't even do, because someone else was afraid that they might have said that. It's almost like, according to this Facebook status that this guy put out, this open letter, he's like, you got hype guys running around saying how great you are. You are paying them to go around and say, you're the greatest. You're going to be king. You're going to rule. And Nehemiah decides to ignore the hype and choose to believe. This is a really interesting concept because, to me, a rumor is believing the worst in somebody. You're choosing to believe the worst about that person. That's what, at the very heart of it what a rumor is. I am choosing not to trust you. I'm choosing not to believe in the character that I've seen in you. I'm instead choosing to believe the worst moment that I've ever had with you. I'm going to take that and define your whole person by that one nasty comment that you made in frustration to me. It's a choice by the hearer to say, you know what, I believe that. And I know people have said that because I've said it. And if I've said it, I can assume it's part of the basic human interactions where somebody comes and says something to you. You're like, yeah, I can believe that. I will believe that lie about them. Because I've had people say that to me, like, oh, can you believe so-and-so did that? I'm like, yeah, I can believe that. And what have I just said? Yeah, I'm believing the worst in them. I'm mistrusting them. I'm choosing to exclude them. I'm choosing to push them out. I don't know if we always think about it when we say things this way. But I would say that the good leader ignores that hype and chooses to believe the best. Have you ever noticed people rise to your expectations? You expect them to do poorly, they do poorly. As a teacher, I know that in a school, if I expect a student to do bad, they will do bad. Guaranteed. 
If I set the bar down here, that's where they're going to be. Especially if I tell them. If I tell that student, you're going to do bad on this, you're terrible, you're awful, you're never going to succeed in my class, guaranteed they'll fail. 100%. Just look it up. And a good leader doesn't do that. A good leader chooses to believe the best. Nehemiah put himself out there for these people when they're rebuilding this wall. He believed they could get it done. And without that belief, they wouldn't have. Because if he was up front every day as the enemies are coming and all this stuff's going on, just sort of scuffling his feet saying, yeah, my people are so lazy. They never do anything right. Even a fox could knock down our wall. They're right. They wouldn't have got it done. So ignore the hype and choose to believe. Choose to believe the best in people. Choose to believe the best in the folks that are around you, that are close to you. That if next time somebody comes to you and says, can you believe so-and-so said this about you? Like, yeah, I can believe that. But that's not who they are. They probably said that out of frustration. There was probably an extenuating circumstance that I don't know about. There was something else going on. I'll make sure we can both go and talk to them and we'll sort this out. We'll handle this. And thereby, you can kill it. Like, yeah, they're human. They could have said that. But that's not who they are. They're not a person like that. Let's go find out what's going on. Last thing on rumors and all the stuff like this. I want to throw out a fake statistic, but I won't. I'll shame myself. Most of the time when people are being mean and nasty, it's not even because of you. It's because of something else. There's some other foundational thing off to the side that's got them riled. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe they're having trouble at home. Maybe they've got a kid that was up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and so they're a little stressed that next day. And it's not that they're a bad person or they're mad at you. It's there's some other extenuating circumstance. And then all of a sudden, we have a rumor that goes flying around you know, the church or a rumor that goes flying around your friend group or your workplace or wherever. Oh, did you hear what so-and-so said about so-and-so? And you're like, gosh, you probably had something else happen. Relax. Let it go. Ignore that. Move on. It can be really powerful. Nehemiah was able to do this because of his philosophy. They were all trying to frighten us with their rumors, with their plots, with their schemes, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Now, for those of you that are reading along with me and you're looking at the screen, what is it that causes you to have weak hands? Shout it out. Fear. Fear causes you to have weak hands for the work. Fear causes your hands to tremble. A life of fear will cause you to not finish what you start. A life of fear will cause you to believe the rumors that you hear. A life of fear will not see this wall rebuilt. He's praying for the opposite. Fear, mistrust, destroy teams. If I've learned nothing else on kitchen nightmares, and I have, I feel like learned a lot. It, when people are afraid of their leadership, the entire organization suffers. Their hands become weak for the work. All of a sudden, because they're afraid to bring some negative feedback to the head chef, now the chef doesn't know that their soup's not salted properly. And they can't know to fix it because they're not getting any feedback to let them know, hey, this is a problem. Nehemiah is listening to his people. He's not being driven by fear. He's not being cast into fear by the rumors. He's not being cast into fear by the armies. Instead, he's praying, now, Lord, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands so that I can overcome fear with love. We know from later in Scripture that perfect love casts out fear. Love will get you to do things fear will never do. Love will make your hands stronger for the work than any fear could possibly drive you to. Love is a limitless resource. Your hands can become infinitely strong with love. In fear, your hands are only as strong as you're afraid. 
The second you lose that fear, you lose the strength. Easy illustration for this, people who become Christians because they don't want to go to hell because someone scared them really bad with a movie one time. As soon as that fear of hell disappears, their Christianity disappears with it. It's gone. It evaporates like salt that you leave out in the rain. It's just disappeared the next day. Fear will only push you insofar as you're afraid. But love, love will strengthen your hands for the work. And it's with this ethic, with this philosophy of love set right in the middle of these three responses that we can understand how Nehemiah avoids the rumors, how Nehemiah finishes the job that he set out to start and stays focused and on task for what he's doing. Next one. Second thing is that fear leads directly to sin. We're going to see that here in a moment. So if mistrust and fear weaken our hands, they lead to sin. And if love and trust strengthen our hands, they lead to good work. If you love your neighborhood, if you love your city, if you love your workplace, if you love whatever, you will do good work there. Period. There's no fancy statement after that. You will do good work there. I guarantee it. 100%. If you love your coworkers, you will have a harmonious environment at work. For you. They may be full of fear and full of mistrust and discord, but you will have harmony because you've set out your goal to love them. And that will lead to you doing good work for them. When you love somebody, you don't think twice about doing something nice for them. Of course. Why wouldn't I do that? I love you. When you fear someone, you think twice about everything you do for them. You're like, well, I could give them this cupcake, but is he going to think that I'm saying that he's fat and that he just keeps putting on weight? Or I could withhold the cupcake, but then is he going to think that I'm stingy, that I'm withholding the cupcake for him? And you go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And you never know how to make a decision, and it paralyzes you. And that leads to sin. It leads to inaction. It leads to not loving. There we go. Here's Nehemiah's final reply. One day, I went to the house of Shemiah, son of Eliah, son of Mehethabel, who was shut in in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Okay, one more. There we go. All right. If Nehemiah ran and hid, it would be because he was afraid. His fear would be controlling his decisions. He would run and hide from the difficult task that was put in front of him. And in so doing, he might preserve his life. He sort of could run into the temple, claim sanctuary, hide out there, and sort of wait till the whole thing blows over. But, instead, he focuses on finishing what he starts. He ignores the rumor that people are coming to kill him at night. He ignores that, finish what he starts, and love requires that he takes this position. His love for the people trumps his love for his own life. His love for the people trumps his love for his own life. This thing must be done. This is the thing that God has ordained me to do. The only way for me to finish this is to stay here and finish it, not to run away in fear, not to let my hands be weakened and hide in the temple, not to go off to the side and find the easy way out, but instead to put my head down, put my shoulder to the yoke, and get it done. With... This thought is really personal to me. This whole sermon's been really personal to me. I don't know if you've caught that or not. This whole sermon's really personal to me. I keep talking in the eye. 
Not only because it's emotionally healthy, but because I feel like this is me. Many of you know, my wife and I, our time here at Truvine is coming to a close. We're getting ready to go overseas with the Christian Missionary Alliance. We're going to be elsewhere this time next year. We don't know where exactly because of the process. It's, we think, somewhere in Europe, probably Germany or France. But the CMA will send you where the CMA wants to send you. That's kind of how that works. I don't really want to go in my flesh. Just being honest. Everyone I know is here. Philly, South Jersey, New York. I don't want to go anywhere else. Our house is slowly emptying of possessions. I recently gave away all my books from seminary and postgraduate work that I had done. Because they can't go with me. Heartbreaking. I love my books. Loved. They're gone. They're not coming back. I loved my books. They were part of who I was. You'd come into our house and we'd have stacks of wooden boxes filled with books. Well, guess what? There's lots of empty wooden boxes now. We still have some books, but their number is fast dwindling. I recently posted up on Facebook. Uh, Gary was the recipient of one of them. I gave away all of my old video game stuff because it wasn't going with us. Where I'm going, it can't follow. My wife and I have donated tons of our clothes. Our entire life needs to fit into two suitcases. You want to talk about dying for the kingdom? I already feel like I'm dead. It's killing me. I, my daughter is the only granddaughter my parents will have. Is They're coming through me. I don't have brothers and sisters. My dad's sister... Married a whole bunch of times, no kids. My mom's brother never married. There's very few children in our family, and I'm thinking about taking those children across an ocean. And you see it every time I look in their face. They're like, can't you wait till we die? I'm like, no, man, Jesus said you got to go. I'm going. But I don't want to. This idea of dying the kingdom, it's really costly. And if I was afraid, I wouldn't do it. I've prayed on numerous occasions for God to give me and my wife a different calling. Please, God, anything else. Let me be a pastor somewhere. Let me just settle down, put down roots, stay in one place, you know, live the dream. Let me do that. Or better yet, let me just get out of ministry altogether and let me just be like corporate America, make money, pay for other people to be in ministry. He always says no. And loudly says no. Repeatedly says no. This is what you're supposed to do. This is the work I've called you to. This is what I'm having you do. Do it because you love me. Do it because I loved you first. Do it because I paid for you first. Do it because my kingdom is worth it. Finish what you start. You started this process. Finish it. For two years, we've been going through ordination, doing our alliance licensed ministry experience. It's been a struggle been hard. Ordination is no joke. Ask Luis, ask Jim. It's no joke getting ordained in the CMA. It's a lot of work. Before that, three and a half years of seminary. Finish what you start. Finish what you start. This is God talking to me, not me talking to you. You can talk to yourself about it later, but for me, finish what you start. You started this process. You started this journey, and it may not be pleasant all the time, but it's the journey you're on. Let's see what my next slide says. Because when you finish what you start, you get results. When you ignore the rumors and don't let people distract you with what they say, you get results. When you're motivated by love and your hands are strengthened to do the work 
out of love for the people around you, you get results. Things actually happen for people who work in this fashion. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. You ever run into people and they just have the wildest stories? You hear them talk and you're like, man, I want that. Whatever that is, I want it. And then they tell you how to get there and they're like, it's discipline, hard work, and commitment. And you're like, well, shoot, I was in up until you said discipline and hard work. Get all that noise. I want lackadaisical, carefree, living. I don't want to have to think about stuff. I don't want to have to think about being consistent and following through and making sure I do what I have to. I don't want any of that. But it's love that gets you there. It's commitment that gets you there. It's trust, choosing to believe in the good. Nobody has ever achieved anything by being a cynic. Nothing gets done that way. That guy that walks around is like, that can't be done. What has he ever done? So what do you just take joy in being the first one to announce something's failure? Is that what you get out of saying, oh, it'll never work? And then when it does work, they're like, oh, I guess I was wrong. And then you do the next thing, like, oh, that'll never work either. What do you get out of this? No one has ever achieved anything by being a cynic. But they have achieved things through love and belief and trust. All of human society is built on trust. The more we trust, the more we can achieve. The more we trust each other as a congregation, the more we can achieve as a congregation. If you think about our church, the more we trust each other, the more we love each other, the more we come together, the farther we're going to go. The farther we're going to go because we can trust each other and rely on each other and know that Okay, I know maybe they did this one thing back here, but I'm not going to be cynical about their behavior. I'm going to trust that that was a bad day for them. I'm going to trust that that was a weak moment and that actually they're a child of God. They're loved by God. They're being empowered by the Holy Spirit. They will rise above this. I will believe in that for them, and I will pray for them for that. Not in a sort of cynical, oh, God, you could never fix that person kind of way, but in a, God, I know because you fixed me. You're still fixing me. I still got work to do. I still have bad days. But you're working with me, so you can work with them. And I choose to believe that you are working with them. Because you're never busy. You're never not busy. God's always got his hand in the pot somewhere. And he gets results. Give me another slide, please. There's also this interesting paradigm between Nehemiah and Jesus. They both finished what they started. Jesus could have got off the cross if he wanted. Don't act like he couldn't have miracled himself right off of that cross and be like, that is enough. Chris is not worth all this suffering. I'm out. He could have done that, but he finished what he started. He finished what he set up to do. How many rumors they started about Jesus while he was alive? He hangs out with tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, drunks, gluttons. Does Jesus ever acknowledge any of those rumors? Just like, no. You said, you asked why John's men didn't eat and drink. You asked why I do. Forget you people. You're going to start rumors? Just fine. You do that over there. I have my thing that I have to do. And they both sacrificed for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus gave life and blood to extend grace to us. What can we sacrifice to extend grace to each other? Can we sacrifice pride? Yeah. Money? Food? Time? Possession? Yeah. Blood? You willing to get behind somebody? Push? Believe? Trust? Strengthen their hands? Finish what you start with people. A lot of times we get discouraged about halfway through. It's like the Wednesday of the project. Man, only I can get through Wednesday. The rest of the week's downhill. I don't know that Jesus looked at it that way. 
fairly certain when he set out to complete this task of bringing grace to all of us, he set out in a determined fashion, believing that some of us would accept that grace. Some of us would be welcomed into the kingdom. That he was willing to sacrifice everything for that. Move on, please. One more? I think I got more. Slide me. Hey, there it is. So here's, I always have to leave you with homework. Sorry, latent high school, college paradigm. Still hasn't worn out of me yet, even though I've been not at that job now for a couple weeks. What have you started? What task, what project, what relationship, what thing have you started? And what's stopping you from finishing? And how can we help? How can we help you finish whatever it is that you've been doing? And now if you're like me, which I think I'm pretty normal, well, as normal as a weirdo can be anyway, I've got a list of things that I've started and not finished. I'm chipping away at them. A little bit at a time here, a little bit at a time there. Almost done ordination. Praise Jesus. Almost done. How can we help? There is nothing. I'm going to step out on a limb here, and Luis is here so he can correct me if I'm wrong. Nothing that he and Jim would like more than if people said, I want to finish this. This is what I need to get it done. So they can empower you to do the ministry that you've been called to do. Because you're saying, you're not coming to them and saying, here, finish this project for me. You're coming to them and saying, how can I finish this project? I need to go do some work. So they can help you to get there. I know that stands for my wife and I as well. That if there's something that you feel like you've been sort of stuck, something that you feel like God's told you to do that you just can't quite figure out how to make it happen, come talk to us. We'll sit down, we'll have dinner, we'll talk, we'll figure it out. Two, ignore the hype. Hey, go back. When skeptics and cynics tell you it can't be done, pray, Lord, strengthen my hands. I was once told by an 85-year-old man who had been working in the kingdom of God faithfully at this point for something like 55 years. He said, there's three kinds of people in the world. The pessimist who says it can't be done. The optimist who says it can be done. And the peptimist who says it's already done, what's next? I'll say that again because it bears repeating. That's, that phrase changed my life. There's the optimist who says it can be done. The pessimist who says it can't be done. And the peptimist who says it's already done, what's next? If I know anything about the culture of this church, it's that we are looking for that third class of people. People that are saying, I'm moving in it. We're getting it done. We're seeing the walls rebuilt. I'm not worried about whether it can or can't be done because it already is done. We're on the next thing. What's the next thing that's coming along so that we can get our hands dirty and do the work? A lot of times, sorry, last personal story, and then I'll stop. My dad was famous for this. I bashed him earlier, so I'll give him props later in the sermon, just to even the scales. There was one day, I was a teenager, 18 years old. Dad wanted me to take out the trash. I didn't live in Philadelphia where you're, you know, your driveway is like three feet long if you have a driveway, or you, know, you move your trash cans like a grand total of 20 feet. It was like a quarter mile from the house the road. And he had to make a couple trips, a lot of trash, drag all the trash cans up front. I could put it in my pickup truck, drive it up front, take maybe five minutes. I argued with my dad for, I want to say two hours, about the rightness or wrongness of me taking the trash out. And at the end of that two hours, he looked at me and he said, son, we've been talking for two hours. Take maybe five minutes to take out the trash. How would you rather spend your time doing the thing that I've told you to do for five minutes or arguing with me about it for two hours? Finish what you start. A lot of times, 
we argue, we get caught up in the hype, we get caught up in why something can't be done, we get caught up on how hopeless of a cause so-and-so is, we get caught up in how worthless of a person that person is, so why bother, why try? And we spend more time psyching ourselves out of the job that God has told us to do than it would actually take to do the job that God has told us to do. And if you don't know, if you don't know what God has told you to do, here's how you find out. What are you willing to die for? What are you willing to fight so hard for that you would die? That as you sit up late at night, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, wondering what the purpose of life is, why you continue to draw breath, what makes breath not a clock, that moment where you're like, this, this thing, start there. That's God's first assignment for you. What are you willing to die for? What do you love so much that you'd be willing to let your own life go over it? Start there. And you'll find that as that starts in one place, you start drawing your circle bigger of what it is you're willing to die for. And you start drawing your circle bigger in what you consider kingdom ministry. And you start building your circle bigger and circling more and more and more people in and saying, yeah, I'm willing for you. Yeah, I'm willing. Come on, let's go. Let's do this work. Ignore what those cynics are saying. Ignore what the people outside are saying. Avoid that. Let's focus on finishing this thing right here. And let's go to the grave for this thing. Start in that spot. The answer to that question for me, what am I willing to die for? This is the lost. Sure, I'll move. I'll go overseas. Those people never get to hear about Jesus. There's half a percent believing rate in France. 1% believing rate in Germany. Now there's nominal Lutherans and nominal Catholics in both places, but actual go to church, have a relationship, get involved, volunteer, bless the people around them, less than a 2% in both places. That's not fair. It makes me angry. It makes me want to do something about that. I care enough for them to leave all of you wonderful people and my family and my friends and everything that I know. Learn a new language, do a new thing. Because they're worth it. I know this is conclusion, and spoiler alert, you already put conclusion two up there. There's conclusion part two. Uh, this kind of sounds crazy, and I'll admit it. It's, I believe a man came back from death. That's kind of crazy. 2,000 years ago, and it changed the world. It's a little out there. It's not for everybody. I'll admit that but this is why I think it's worth it. This comes from Corinthians. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, he has gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That the work that you do in the kingdom, when you finish the tasks that God gives you to start, when you ignore the cynics, and when you're willing to die for it, that only makes sense in light of this verse, that you do not labor in vain. Otherwise, Dying for something would be stupid because it would be in vain. It would dissipate after you died. Closing story. In 1910, there were more missionary graves from the Christian Missionary Alliance in the, the Congo than there were active missionaries. Six months was the average time that you lived when you left America or Canada and you sailed to the Congo. You packed your belongings in a coffin because your chance of dying was that high. They shipped your coffin over with you. We had more dead bodies in the ground than we had living souls above ground. That was in early 1900s. Today, today, one-third of the 10 million Christian and Missionary Alliance people are in the Congo. Over three million souls presently, not total, presently, are in the Congo of our denomination. 
because that labor for which they gave their life was not in vain. And that story has been repeated around the world. Vietnam's got the same story. Their national church is Christian Missionary Alliance because when everybody else left, we stayed and they killed us a lot. But there are Christians in Vietnam in the millions because of the work that was not in vain because people went and finished what they started. Korea was called unreachable 100 years ago. Now it sends more missionaries than the United States. China was... Chairman Mao said 50 years ago, he burned the last seminary and said, Christianity will never come back here. Nine million people a year plus get saved in China every year now. When you labor in this way, you do not labor like somebody who's doing social justice. You do not labor like a politician. You do not labor like a policeman. You labor like a Christian. And you know that your labor is not in vain because God is not going to let your work, he's not going to leave it unfinished even if it doesn't finish in your lifetime because you die of malaria in 1908 in the Congo, you died because you love those people and God honors that. Even if you're in Philadelphia today and you feel like you're laboring in vain, let me encourage you that you do not labor in vain because God never leaves things unfinished. And Even if you feel like it's hopeless, he doesn't or he wouldn't have given you the task to finish what you start. Ignore the cynics and be ready to die for whatever it is he's asked you to do. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you're good, and you are worth laboring for. You're not only worth laboring for, you're worth dying for. Your kingdom is so valuable that there's nothing in this life that we could hold back because you've already given it all. Lord Jesus, we've seen your mighty works. We've seen you save people around the world. We've seen you change people in our city. We've seen you change people in our families. I ask that this week bring to mind those assignments that were started and not finished. Bring to mind those people, those relationships that were started and not finished. Lord, help them to ignore the height. Ignore the cynics, the haters the skeptics that say it can't be done. Strengthen their hands, Lord, to do the good work that you've set before them. Give them a heart that is tender towards people and willing to suffer, willing to suffer long, and ultimately willing to give up everything for the sake of your kingdom. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Go in peace.